Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. Learn more about Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us at 10 a.m. on Sundays at voxoc.com slash live and at the Eldorado Performing Arts Center. Good morning. Good morning, Vox. How are you guys? Oh, we're missing part of our stage here. We've got a production here going uh, at the school. So uh, good morning. Good morning. Uh, we're glad that you're with us. Uh, it's, uh, it's been a good, good uh, weekend. I think we've got some fun stuff uh, planned for you. A couple things that you need to know about today. Today's a big day for us as a church because uh, immediately following the service, uh, we're going to be talking about um, next year and some vision-oriented stuff, what we believe God is calling us to as a community. Um, as a church, as a staff, uh, and we want to share that with you, but most importantly, we want to get your feedback on that. We want you to speak into it. Uh, we'd love to hear uh, your thoughts and uh, your concerns and all that sort of stuff because, you know, that's, that's who we are as a church is that we're a place that's safe to talk about anything and everything, and so we invite you to come. Uh, it's only going to be about 35, 40 minutes, so it'll be fast. We'll have some snack over there because I know some of you guys are hungry after service. I am as well, too, um, so we won't take up too much time. Uh, on the heels of that, another thing I need for you guys, from you guys to participate in uh, we're doing a survey uh, from you about some different things for the next year. Uh, and that's important to us because obviously we don't want to just come up with stuff that we think you need or want to know about or care about. We actually want to know what you think. And so this is your opportunity to speak into that, uh, to give your uh, opinions and thoughts and sort of stuff. So there's a survey. If you go on the website, voxoc.com, uh, you'll see there's a survey link. You can click on that. Uh, fill out the survey. It doesn't take very long, five minutes. Uh, it'll give us information and then help us sort of plan the next year. So that's important. So voxoc.com, after the service, you can do it on your phone or whatever. Uh, that'll be a great help to us. Uh, the other thing is, uh, yes, I think I covered it. Yes, and we have uh, the meeting afterwards. So that being said, a little bit about us. If you're new here, uh, we take questions from everybody and anybody who ever has questions about anything. So uh, that's part of creating space that's safe to talk about anything. And so we got some questions from last week. Um, I taught last week and there's some good questions in here. So what I want to do is take a few minutes to answer these questions and then we'll jump right into the service. So first question. I am becoming so confused and a bit cynical when reading my Bible. I, know not, I no longer know what is allegory when I'm reading and what is literal. Good question. I will be hearing or reading a passage and then suddenly stop and think, wait, how am I supposed to interpret this? I am not, nor will I ever be a biblical scholar. Do I just close my Bible and wait to be taught, which is dangerous, or read and hope I'm getting it right? I think that's the end of it, right? Yes, good question. And let me just say, I have too felt that. Uh, in my own journey, I have felt like, what, what am I doing here? Uh, what is all this? You know, somebody asked us one time, what, is, what do the Vox staff have questions about? And these are some of the things that I question too. Like, how do I know what I'm doing? And uh, a couple weeks ago, I, I, I spoke on a message about uh, the who and not the what. And I think I want to kind of draw attention back as we look at this question. Um, we want to hold a posture. I think the most important thing is to hold a posture of openness, an open hand, and an open heart uh, to what Scripture is saying. And we want to focus on the who. But the what is not unimportant. The what is important. There is a, a power in knowing what. But the preoccupation with the what can sometimes distract us from the very core, the very essence, which is the who. And that's Jesus. And so if we want to keep our hearts focused on that. Um, and then when we approach the text, there's a couple things, some practical things I think we can talk about, uh, which is, you know, we, you'll hear us as a, from time to time as teachers go, hey, we have to understand context, right? Like any, like any good uh, literary uh, person who's opening a book, you have to understand the context. Who is it being written to? An important fact about scripture is that it wasn't written to you and I. 
but it is for us. The Bible is for us, but it wasn't written to us. It's to a specific time and place and people. Uh, there were certain things that were happening in their culture, in their context, and you have to have to take that into, into consideration because without that, we can draw um, conclusions that could be false. And, you know, we, there's all kinds of weird stuff that comes out of that. People make theological doctrinal statements about stuff that have no applicability to us today. Uh, and so that's a dangerous, dangerous thing. And so I think a practical approach is, hey, what's the context? What's being said and to who? What time? Another practical thing is you can pick up a commentary. There's lots of different commentaries out there that are helpful, um, and there are some commentaries that maybe not be so helpful. But again, if we approach the text with an open heart and an open hand and go, hey, this isn't about being right, okay? I'm not trying to prove myself and come up with some doctrinal statement to prove that I'm right about something, but I just want to hear what God is saying. Um, I think when you approach it that way, you, you understand that there's, people are split on decisions about different things theologically, and that's okay. We can agree to disagree, but we focus on the who, which is Jesus. Um, if there, if you guys want, I have some of those resources I can give you after service. We'll maybe put them up on the website. Uh, I think of one right now. Uh, a fee has a book um, called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, which is a great book, a great resource. It'll kind of give you some background information about the scriptures. That'll help you. Again, I know that you don't maybe don't want to be a biblical scholar, and I think that's okay, but at the same time, the text uh, should be treated with respect because it is an ancient literary text that has lots of wisdom and lots of things in it and that we need to make sure that we handle that correctly. And I'd say lastly, um, the beautiful thing about scripture is that it's so layered. Uh, and, and, and in that way, uh, you can get truth at different layers. So, you know, you may not know anything about it and you can still read scripture and I, and I believe that God still speaks through that and his spirit speaks to our spirit and you can gain truth even at, at, a, very, at a very top level, a very surface level, if you will. And that's not a bad thing. And as you continue to dig deeper, you'll find deeper truths. And I've experienced that in my journey through school. Uh, and, 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 and I've re read stuff and I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that was in there. Oh my gosh. And so that helps me understand a little bit of the nature of scripture. So um, some practical things, you know, approach it with an open heart, uh, focus on the who, not so much the what. And now the what's important, but we're not saying that what is everything. Uh, and then maybe pick up some, some helpful aids, like, uh, you know, some commentaries that will help. And again, I have those resources. We can put those on the website for you if that's helpful as well. Uh, okay, next question. Question two. <clears throat> Hi, Ronnie. In your message today, you asked, this is from last week, where the us versus them is played out in our own lives. For me, the them would be the unsafe people who've hurt me. My inner person is messy because of this. I see a parallel with Vox community itself, where the them might be the unsafe churches who've hurt them. I struggle to sit gracefully in the same room with someone who is not safe for me, but whom Jesus calls me to love. In parallel, I wonder if Vox struggles to sit lovingly in the Orange County with sister churches who do not feel safe for them, but whom God calls them to love. It's so good. As I struggle to discern partnership with the Spirit in the area of loving my unsafe people, would it be fair to uh, would it be a fair observation that one of the Vox's challenge is to learn to actively love the sister churches who it considers itself to be different from? Yes. Does safe to belong make you uh, make you and us that resides in an exclusive boundary area. I ask this from a place of love because Vox, you are loved by someone who also serves a mega church that you have sometimes viewed with skepticism as them. What can you do as a community to help break down this dividing line between yourself and the unsafe churches around you? Thanks for your response. Such a good question. Such a good question. And uh, to surface level answer that, yes, absolutely, 100%. I think uh, anytime we bring our hurts and our pains and our fears into a context, uh, that definitely creates some um, unsettling and some tension. Now, I will say this, and I didn't get to say this last week, and so I, it's probably worth mentioning this week. Um, 
that yes, them is important and them is important to love because Jesus has no thems, right? However, I think there's wisdom that sometimes because we can love them doesn't mean we have to hang out with them. Uh, doesn't mean that we have to be in proximity or close relationship to them. I think what I was getting at more importantly was that can we humanize those people and see them as just like us, as similar as us, as living, breathing human beings who are broken and fragile and still trying to find their way through life just like us. Because I think when we see them them like that, uh, it becomes more of a we because we're all in this together as opposed to us where I've got it figured out and they don't. So that's an important distinction because it can almost sound like I'm saying, hey, if somebody hurt you, uh, or somebody has done something bad to you, then you should go hang out with them and love them because that's what Jesus calls you to. And I think there's wisdom in that. I think you have to discern, hey, what, what, is, what is appropriate for me to be in this relationship? And so that's an important distinction that we need to make in that. Now, secondly, yes, I think that Vox is unique in its, uh, in its origin. And we do have a tension to hold where uh, we want to love the churches that are not like us, that are different than us. And how do we do that? Um, I think as we um, progress in our, in our understanding of, of the mystery, uh, we go, hey, I don't, we don't have the answers. And, and I still say this today that uh, somehow, some way, God speaks through the fragility of this community. Um, he changes people's lives. And he does that in numerous communities, mega church, small church, you know, all kinds of different churches. And you can look at that and go, I can't believe that people show up to that church. Well, God's doing something. And it just shows you the transcendent nature and the power of the Holy Spirit to speak to people's hearts and minds. And I think, um, yeah, we have a, a unique responsibility to love those churches around us. And so that's a journey that we're on, that we're constantly going, how do we partner? How do we care for? How do we love? Uh, which is, I think, also Andy did a great job of talking about, hey, if you feel called to, to, to minister and to lead and care for people at other churches, go, do that. I think that's what the heart of Vox is, is to love people and create safety to care for others. And so um, that's a great question. And uh, it's one that I, and I sat there and I read it and I thought, yeah, that's, that's a huge one. And, and I fall victim to that where I want to put myself in an us and them category and that's dangerous. So uh, thank you for that question. It's a good question. Please keep the questions coming. Um, we'd love to keep, continue to answer those. So Without further ado, I'm going to be done talking because we got to get through this morning. Uh, we have a great friend of ours um, who is uh, a new friend and hopefully will become a long-term friend uh, of Vox Church. Uh, about a few months ago, we started having conversations with staff about uh, how do we bring the perspective of Jewish culture? Uh, because none of us are uniquely Jewish and none of us have ha actually had intense Jewish scholarship or studied. So how do we understand the Jewishness of Jesus, the text in which it was written? And so we started having conversations of who could we bring in? And so uh, we got connected through a couple of different friends to our friend, Josh Schofair. And uh, Josh is gonna come and share a little bit about himself and about his story. But uh, real quickly, Josh has worked for Jews for Jesus for over 25 years uh, in LA. He's lived in New York. Um, he has a pretty unique story um, in his life and where he's got to this point and how he uh, came to find Jesus. And so I'm excited to introduce to you, Vox, our friend Josh Sofair. Would you welcome him, please? All right, man, thanks. All right, good morning. It's nice to see you. Happy Hanukkah. <laughs> so, uh, it is really a joy for me to be here, and I actually am going to talk to you this morning about, about Hanukkah. And um, if you don't know, it's, it's within the week of Hanukkah right now. And so, right, it looks like text questions. Okay, so happy Hanukkah. So, so the, we're in the week of Hanukkah, 
uh, and uh, it finishes up in a couple of days. And so if you have um, Jewish family or Jewish friends, you've hopefully been invited over to eat latkes. If you ever never had a latka, find a deli. <laughs> And order one, or three, or four, and so they're they're wonderful things. But um, it is uh, it's an important part of what it is to uh, be. Uh, in a Jewish family and celebrate. It's one of the life cycle uh, uh, kind of things that happen in the life of a Jewish person. So I don't know how to move to the next slide, so I'm just going to go next slide. There you go. Okay, so let me introduce myself to you a little bit. Um, there's me on the right, my wife and my two daughters uh, there, and my wife's in the middle of them. Uh, I grew up in a Jewish family in Northern California. Um, we were not a particularly religious family. So for me, that means being Jewish was about being politically liberal and eating really, really good food. And so that was our religion growing up. My wife uh, grew up in a, in a Jewish family where her uh, grandparents came to believe in Jesus. They were refugees from Vienna, Austria ended up settling in um, uh, the Central Valley of California uh, near Fresno, uh, came to faith in Jesus as Messiah through a relationship with a German-speaking Mennonite farmer in a very small town, in a town called Reedley, if some of you know where that is. So it's, uh, right, one person knows where Reedley is, evidently. So um, so they, it's, it's quite a story. So we, we both kind of grew up... Um, it's our dog and our, our, our cool uh, retro trailer. Her name is Nancy, so, so that's Nancy's part of the family too. Okay, you can go to the next one. So uh, Paso, or, sorry, Hanukkah is a holiday that often is associated with something like this. A, uh, this is called a Hanukkah menorah. It's uh, a menorah that has uh, nine uh, arms to it, one in the middle, four on either side. There's another kind of menorah that would have been more of the ancient one. Israel uses it as a symbol that's got seven branches, but the Hanukkah menorah has nine, and it is one of the symbols that we have today for the celebration of Hanukkah in many Jewish families. And so uh, it's a time that people will gather. It's uh, very often a celebration that happens at home. Um, there's, uh, in, in synagogues, there'll usually be some sort of activity. Eating food is always part of it, and um, you eat foods that are cooked in oil. And so this is a fry, usually these fried potato pancakes called latkes, um, donuts, um, anything that's fried in oil because there is a story connected to Hanukkah about a miracle of oil lasting eight days that should have only lasted one day. But we'll get there in, uh, in a minute. So uh, next one. There's lots of different kinds of menorahs, I will tell you, because in Jewish communities around the world, there are um, lots of expressions of how Jewish families celebrated. Some Jewish people are um, 
probably most Jewish people have their background in, uh, in Europe. My family's Jewish background goes to the Middle East. So my family originally is from Iraq and Iran. My father was born in India, and then they came to the United States. So for me, Jewish food is, is curry and things like that. So there you go. So um, let me, uh, you go to the next one. There you go. I want to start this morning actually in something that's a little bit more familiar territory for you, and I want to um, uh, start in the New Testament, because in the New Testament is the one place in the Bible that the story of Hanukkah is mentioned. It's not mentioned in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, because the story of Hanukkah hadn't happened yet. It happened in between the end of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New Testament, um, during that intertestamental period of time, and it's mentioned here in the book of John, chapter 10, starting in verse 22. And I'm just going to read these verses for you. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon, and the Jews gathered around him and said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, or if you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Okay, so let me kind of give you some backstory as to what's going on. First of all, the festival of dedication is Hanukkah. The word Hanukkah means dedication, and when John is talking about the Feast of Dedication, this is Hanukkah. So Feast of Dedication equals Hanukkah. Winter equals winter. It's not that hard. All right, so this is a good example of literal versus allegorical. This is literal. It was winter. And if you've ever been to Israel in the winter, it is so freezing cold. You have no idea. It snows in Jerusalem. So it really gets cold there. So that's what was going on. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So let's see if you can go to the next slide. I want to show you something. Okay. If you've ever been to Israel, which I hope sometime you get a chance to go to, in Jerusalem, the National Museum of Israel is in Jerusalem. It's a wonderful museum. And they have a, um, a model of what they think the first century Jerusalem looked like. And it used to be in a hotel. It was like a tourist thing that like some guy kind of did. It was his own project. And he thought this is an example of what, this is the model. That's a picture of the model in Jerusalem. So that's not real. Those people that are standing in the background, they're not giants. They're normal sized, okay? So, but this is what the temple would have been in the front, okay? And the area on the left, that long kind of looks like a building there, it's just an open, that is the colonnade of Solomon. So the Colonnade of Solomon was kind of like a sort of a picnic pavilion sort of thing where it had a roof and and, uh, uh, columns and it was open on the inside, but it was sort of a gathering place people could go and my guess is they're getting warm in there. So that's a little bit of what's going on. So it's winter, it's Hanukkah, and then it says, and the, actually, could you go back to the last one? 
there we go. It says, so the Jews gathered around him and said, okay, first of all, the Jews, okay. They're all Jews, <laughs> okay? The Jews. You know, it's not about like the bad Jews and the good Jews. This is a way of saying that there is uh, probably a group of more religious people that are gathering around Jesus and, and saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? And they're almost asking this question kind of out of anxiety, right? It's like, come on, when, when are you gonna tell us? Well, tell us now. And so you gotta ask the question, what is going on? What's the backstory? And so that's what we're gonna talk a little bit about now. And we're gonna kind of go backwards in time to the end of the Old Testament. So you can uh, flip through the next one and then the next one, I think. There you go, okay. So this is an etching. Uh, there's not a lot of art connected to the story of the Maccabees. There are some famous pieces of music. There are some paintings. This is an etching of Judas, the, uh, the Judas Maccabeus, Judah the Maccabee. So where does this story start? And I'm gonna go back to the end of the Old Testament. The end of the Old Testament, if you remember, ends with the Jewish people coming back out of exile from Babylon back to Israel and rebuilding the temple. I told you my family comes from Iraq. Not all the Jews went back to Israel. Some said, we like it better in exile. <laughs> that was my family, okay? We were the disobedient ones that said, we're good, let us know if something else happens and then maybe we'll think about reconsidering. So we stayed, um, So, but they went back to Israel, they rebuilt the temple, they built the walls around Jerusalem, they reestablished a Jewish leadership under a priest named Ezra and a group of scribes ended up becoming the religious leaders. Very famously, Ezra, if you remember this story, found a copy of the Bible, they had a public reading of the Bible, the same year that that happened in Jerusalem, in Greece, the Parthenon was finished. In the Middle East, in Syria, in Baghdad, you had a growing Syrian empire that was threatening the world and threatening to take over Europe and attack the Greek Hellenistic civilization. And what happened over the next hundred years or so were a series of great wars between the three biggest world powers at the time, Greece, Syria, and Egypt. And then came uh, uh, probably the most famous Greek general ever. You know his name? Alexander the Great. So Alexander comes on the scene and uh, somehow is this kind of just amazing leader for his time, becomes uh, incredibly successful, conquers the Egyptians, conquers the, uh, the Carthaginians, conquers the Syrians, and uh, tries to conquer India. Uh, he wanted to go all the, all the way to the Ganges River. Didn't quite make it, got sick, dies in Babylon in 323. 323 BC, Alexander the Great dies. 
And now there is what is understandably a big power struggle. Who's going to take over? He was young. He was like 33 years old. And his generals took over. That's how he appointed. He appointed four generals, and they took over, and one was in charge of Egypt. His name was Ptolemy. One was in charge of Syria. That became what's called the Seleucid Empire. And then two were in charge of Greece. Now, no surprise, they all wanted all of it, so they all fought with each other. Right? One of them stole Alexander the Great's body <laughs> and pro- brought it to Egypt because there was an oracle that said the place where Alexander the bodies lay will be the greatest place of leadership in the world. It's insanity, really, what's going on, except there's people that have great, great power. So these three uh, powers stay in their place for about 150 years, okay? So Greece, the Seleucid Empire in the east, and the Egyptian Empire in the south, and at about 200 AD, the Romans started coming on the scene and attack Greece. I know this is like, you know, world history, 10th grade, but it's important. If there, are there any like high school history teachers here? <laughs> Yay, all right, yes, high school history teachers. Okay, very good. Okay, great. So the Romans come on the scene, attack the Greeks. When they like, they thrash the city of Corinth in 200 AD or 200 BC, they totally defeat the city and it was a very wealthy place. And now the Greeks are kind of not doing so good. They're losing money, they're losing power. The Seleucids in the East say, aha, we've got our moment and we're gonna go in and attack them when they're weak. So the Seleucids go and attack the Greeks. At the same time, try and build a partnership with Egypt so they could be like the big dogs in the world. And it was right then that there was a, this is about 160 BC. There was a small group of people in Israel who rebelled. Because as part of this consolidation of power, the Seleucids in the east started going to these places around their area and saying, okay, we're going to now teach you how to live. So first of all, that religion about the one God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, no more. You need to worship the Greek gods. And the ruler of the Seleucid Empire, his name was Antiochus, but he nicknamed himself Antiochus Epiphanes, which means Antiochus, the very presence of God. He had a bit of an ego. And so, uh, and they needed to, uh, they couldn't teach uh, Torah, they couldn't teach the, the Bible, they couldn't circumcise their their children, they couldn't do any of the practices that they typically have been doing. They needed to become Greek. So they went to all of these cities all over the Middle East, including Israel. They went to Jerusalem and Jerusalem cooperated. They went to a number of cities, but then they came to this one little town outside of Jerusalem called Modi'in. 
And there was a father with five sons. His name was Mattathias. And he just sort of rose up in indignation and said, I'm not going to take it anymore. Takes out a sword, kills the Greek, the Syrian Greek leader, kills the Jewish guy that was cooperating because they were in the middle of sacrificing a pig on an altar and then they would force all of the people around to eat the pig. And if you know anything about Jewish people, bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwiches are usually not on the menu, okay? And so it was, it, it led then a three-year kind of revolt against this army, and that's called the Maccabean Revolt. And it ended with the Maccabees rededicating the temple in Jerusalem, taking over the city of Jerusalem from the Seleucids, rededicating the temple, restarting the temple sacrifices, and getting Israel back to where it was before, which was this sort of semi-autonomous place. Amazing victory. Incredible victory. But looking at this story, is, uh, is, is an interesting one. Now, now, I will tell you, after that rededication, uh, the Maccabees became, as many groups often do, very brutal, right? They went around and tried to be the purity kind of people. And so they went around, and, and anybody that had collaborated with the Greeks, uh, they were killed, it was, it's a very nasty, very difficult story, but it's part of what happened. Um, the main leader was this guy, Judah the Maccabee. He was the, their, their military leader. He was killed eventually in battle. His younger brother became like the politician. He actually struck a deal with the Greeks that allowed them to have a semi-autonomous environment again, and they became very, very corrupt. Herod the Great was part of their dynasty. So the leadership that these guys started in about 150 BC went all the way to the time of Jesus. And that's kind of the background of the story of, of Hanukkah. But the story of Hanukkah can be really taken in one of two ways. One way is um, that the story of Hanukkah can be read as a story of victory and a story of survival. We defeated the ones who were coming to get us. We took back our own authority, our own uh, 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 kind of uh, our own agency from those that were trying to oppress us. Or it could be taken as a story of a miracle. For most Jewish people today, the story of Hanukkah is a story of survival and a story of victory. For most Jewish people in Jesus' day, it was also a story of survival, a story of victory. And the tension that you see of the Jewish people asking Jesus, when are you going to tell us plainly if you're the Messiah, was really the question, are you going to be like Judah? Are you going to be like the Maccabees? Because the Romans are all over us. 
They're killing us. Are you going to be the one that ushers in this new revolution? Right? That's what's going on. It gives you great insight into how Jewish people during the first century thought of the idea of the Messiah. They thought of the idea of the Messiah through the context of Hanukkah. Um, you go to the next slide, perhaps. So this is, um, oh, okay, that's the, pat- the next one, I'm sorry. Okay, so this is a dreidel. The dreidel um, is maybe one of the other symbols of Hanukkah, um, and it's, it's, uh, it's from Europe. Uh, the dreidel was developed in Europe um, during a time similar to the, the, the uh, Greeks in, in Israel, where being Jewish was not so easy. Um, Jews were persecuted. Um, Jews were not allowed to teach their children uh, uh, anything from the Bible. And they developed this interesting teaching tool. It's a top. And... Um, you play with like little, uh, it's called gelt, little coins, little, uh, like chocolate, you know, with a foil, those little bags of coins. So that's, you play with those, and um, it, there's four Hebrew letters, nun, uh, gimel, shin, hey, which stand for neskadol hayasham, which is a great miracle happened there, and it's a way of teaching the story of Hanukkah. And if a police... Uh, break into your house, which they often did. Remember story of uh, Fiddler on the Roof? Uh, you could tell the policeman, oh, my kids are just playing with a toy. That's where the story of the, the... So in some ways, this also is a story of survival. You go to the next one. Let's see if we've got the rest. There we go. This is kind of the rest of the story in, in, uh, in John. I will tell you, sorry, um, these two screens are out, so I have no idea what time it is. <laughs> yeah, right, keep going. And then there's another group that are like, oh, you better not go too long. Okay, so, okay. so I'll go uh, to John 10. So John 10, this is after... Uh, that question of the Jewish people in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. He says, so Jesus answers them and says, I told you, I told you and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. And then this verse, and I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This last verse is a verse of confidence. That's a verse of, ah, yes. That's a verse of survival. This is a verse of life. You can be assured that no one is going to come and kill you in the middle of the night. No one is going to take away who you are, your identity, your purpose. All of who you are is not going to be taken from you because I, Jesus am saying, is more powerful than any of the other things, whatever the other things are. The question of survival is answered by Jesus in this verse. But he answers it in a different way than they were expecting. He is not 
like Judah, going to start a war against the Romans. But he is going to bring people into, as it says here, uh, a community of sheep. (laughs) It's not quite what they're expecting, right? Maybe a different animal, certainly a cooler animal than a sheep, you know? Goats are even cooler than sheep. There's lots of like, you know, my children have spent hours watching goat videos on YouTube. I have no idea why, but they just think it's the funniest thing in the world. Hours, literally hours. (laughs) And so what Jesus says is, I'm going to bring you into a new community. And I am going to bring about survival life but I'm going to do it in a way that is outside of what you were expecting. The question of survival, the question of victory, is one that many of us deal with, wonder about all the time. Um, the question of identity is certainly something that we all are uh, working through in our mind and, and deeply connected with individually, culturally, in the world that we live. And so those questions of survival um, are important to us. And Hanukkah and the story of Hanukkah, the idea of the Messiah, and even to a certain extent Christmas and all the story around Christmas sort of put this out on the table. So what do we take from this? So one of the things that that I would say that, that we take from this is to, one, realize that if we are after survival and we're after victory, if we get it, on our own terms, we might be getting something with a whole lot of stuff that we weren't expecting. The Maccabees got victory. They won a military victory against an army. They never, ever should have won. The Maccabees should have been slaughtered. They were priests, which is like, they're like pastors, <laughs> right? What do they do? They read books. They, they have, they're good speakers. They have ideas, right? Uh, They run podcasts, perhaps. (laughs) But they're not usually military people. Sometimes they are, but not usually. Usually they're a little bookie, you know, which doesn't necessarily make them the best, like, military people, you know? And so here you have this rural family that starts this uh, kind of rebellion. They never should have won, but they did. And in their victory, what happened? They became more brutal than the ones that they took over against their own people. There is a downside to survival. If we do it in a way that demands that we have survival based on our own, on our own ideas, because what survival can, doesn't always, can produce is an overemphasis in purity 
And when we talk about purity, what we talk about is more often who's impure. (laughs) And if you're on the impure side, you are uh, not going to really be in a good place because you will end up being the reason for all of the wrongs that the people who are in the pure side face. It must be because of them. That happened to the Hasmoneans, the group that the Maccabees set up. So there's a downside to purity. Um, However, if there is also another way to kind of see this, is that there is a way to see a story like Hanukkah, to see the questions that we face around survival through a different lens, with a different narrative, perhaps. That there is a God who loves all of us, right? Who has invited all of us into a relationship with him and with others that is a relationship that's based around something that happens inside of us rather than something that happens outside of us. We have an eternal, sorry, an internal sense of security, survival, that trumps whatever happens outside. And no, don't get me any, there's no political thing. It overwhelms, whatever. (laughs) Get your thesaurus around that one. So, okay, it is stronger than what's going on outside. Okay? Next slide, perhaps. In the book of Jeremiah, we read a promise about a future. And it's about a new covenant. Uh, a covenant. What's a covenant? Covenant's like a contract. But rather than a contract based on something that we are afraid that the other person will do, like if you buy or lease a car, you sign all these documents that protect the other party because you might take the car and go to Mexico and never pay any other bills. Okay, so they have some sort of security contract. A covenant is similar. It's a commitment that's based on something that even if you don't fulfill your side of the bargain, I will still fulfill mine because it's based on love, not based on fear. That's the difference. So, behold, the days are coming, Jeremiah writes, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. You can go to the next one. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it upon their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I I think there's one more. Yeah. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. The gospel, the good news, the narrative that God invites us into to be part of his sheep 
is that story that says, I want to write my covenant, my law on your hearts. It's not about performance. It's not about um, you securing victory or you securing some line of purity, but it's about me, God, and you having a relationship such that I write my law in your hearts. This was the narrative, the story Jesus was inviting those to uh, be a part of when he answered those leaders. How long will you keep us in suspense? He said, I have told you. And some of you believe and some of you don't. But what I am inviting all of you to is, in an, is a relationship that, that is internal, not external. It's a relationship that involves the law being written, imprinted on the inside of who you are that will be stronger than anything on the outside. And one that ensures a security of your identity, a security of who you are in your relationship with God that is eternal. That's the story of Hanukkah. And that's the story of survival. And I believe that's the story of the gospel. Two things I'm going to end with. I'm going to give you a very quick ad, a Jews for Jesus ad. If you're interested in knowing a little bit more about um, Jewish people, Jewish things, there's a book a friend of mine wrote called Randy Newman. It's called Engaging with the Jewish People. I'm going to send you a copy of this book for free if you would like. I've got some cards. They're on that table in the little kind of front area. Just put your name and address and email on the card. I'll send you, I'll send you one, but I can't send you one if I don't have your address. So the cards are out there. If you would like one, you can uh, put your name on. And finally, I'm going to close in a word of prayer and invite Ronnie to come and uh, lead, the, lead us through communion. And so let me pray for us now. Father, thank you that in you are, our lives can be secure. In you that in spite of or in light of anything that happens outside of us, we know that in you promises can be uh, banked on. And I thank you that as you have made promises to the Jewish people in the past of survival and kept those, God, I, I, I pray that that would give us courage to trust you for the promises that you make to us today. Thank you for communion, the opportunity to connect with you and connect with each other. And Lord, we pray that you would be real in our lives in Yeshua, Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, can we thank Josh real quick? Thank you for giving his time. Thank you so much, brother. Appreciate that. You bet. Uh, so we're going to go into a time of communion. It's the focal point of why we gather the Eucharist. Um, and I love what Josh shared because it, it reminds me again, everything sort of comes back full circle to this moment, which is it's not about what you do. It's not about what you did or didn't do on the outside to get to this place. Uh, the Eucharist says come. 
That's because of what Jesus did. It's because of the who. And he says, come, you're invited to the table. You're invited to partake of me to experience all that I have to give you. And so uh, we're going to take some time to celebrate that together. Um, so the band's going to sing some songs. You're free to move around the room and take communion as you feel led. Uh, gluten-free communion, if you need that, is on that side as well. Anybody with an orange liner is our community pastors. They're there to pray with you. Uh, if you need to talk to somebody, they would want to talk with you as well. So this is your time uh, to respond around the room. Oh, hey, Vox, can we, uh, can we show Josh some love again for coming and sharing his, uh, his wisdom, his insight? Yeah, yeah, hopefully we'll continue to have him back again. Uh, real quick, a couple things about Josh. Um, if you're in a hurry, you got to go. Uh, we're going to work to put his contact information and stuff on our website, so you can go to voxoc.com and get that as well. The cards that he mentioned will be out there. Josh will also be out there. Um, if you want to just fill them out and drop them in the participation box, you can do that, and we'll make sure he gets those. If you want to hand them to him directly, you can do that as well. So I just wanted to give you some of that insight. Um, and with that, uh, if you want to participate financially with what's going on here at Vox um, with us, there's participation boxes on the way out. You can do that. You can do that online as well if you want to do a reoccurring gift, that's something you can do. And I know with year-end giving, um, if you want to give that way, you can do online. If we also now take stock options. I know nothing about stocks, but that's something that you can do. Um, so if you want to give that way, you can do that as well to participate. Um, but uh, if you also, I also need a favor too. Because we're doing our big vision thing for this next year, we have to be out of here about 1130. So we need uh, as many people to help pull things down and get things set up as possible. So if you're willing to stick around and do that, could you help us? Uh, we would love that. Just find somebody with an orange lanyard. They'll tell you what to do and where to move it, uh, and then we can get quickly over to where we need to. So lastly, I have to end with this. I was just told right now that there's a, a young girl who's connected to our community through someone who attends here. Uh, her name is Rowan. Uh, Rowan has had some major heart issues. Um, she's a young girl, uh, and the doctors haven't been able to figure out what's going on. Uh, she was in, in danger of losing her life, and it's obviously a very tragic situation. However, uh, a donor just came online, and she has the possibility of getting a heart replacement for her. Now, uh, that's a great thing for them. It's also a sad thing for the family who's lost the child whose heart it belonged to. Um, so there's a lot of moving parts and nuance and pain and joy and all of the excitement and anxiety that comes along with this. So what we want to do as a community is pray for Rowan. So let me, let me end by praying for her and then we can go. Uh, God, thank you so much for this community of people who gathers in pursuit of who you are, Jesus. Um, we're grateful for the opportunities that we get to gather together to hear different parts of your story and who you are. Um, we uh, embrace the mystery that is you, that we can't pin you down, that we can't put you in a box, that we can't control you like a puppet, um, but we have to trust. We have to trust that you know things that we don't know. And so in this situation, we, uh, with open hands and open hearts, give Rowan to you. Uh, we pray for uh, the doctors, um, the medical staff, the team that's around this whole thing. We pray that you would be there, that you would speak wisdom uh, to it, that you would permeate it, that you would reveal the very character and nature of who you are to those who are connected to the story and around the world who are connected to this story. Um, we pray for the family who's lost a child. Uh, we pray that you would comfort them as well. Uh, we ask that you would just be in this situation in a way that only you can. And so we lift them up to you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. So if you're going to stick around, we'll see you in the other room. Uh, other than that, we'll see you guys next week. God bless you. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash voxcommunity. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com slash participate.